Welcome to the Burning Man Philosophical Center. I'm Caveat. Michael Bess studies the way we interact with technologies that might destroy us. Nuclear weapons, biological agents, and yes, artificial intelligence, among others. And in his examination of the ways humanity might come to an end, he has also developed a theory of what makes us human. That it is not any one factor, but a large number of factors, all blending together to become more than the sum of their parts, like a symphony. And Best thinks that one of the greatest dangers we're facing from AI and from the genetic engineering of human beings is not just total destruction, though that could happen, but the change of the human experience, the human symphony, into something that is less than the sum of its parts. It may already be happening, he warns. Look at your behavior. You may already be more robotic than you think. Michael Bess is our guest in this Burning Man Philosophical Center podcast. So, Michael Bess, my understanding is that the next book you're working on is an examination of what makes us human and what humanity is. So, I guess in this time of increasingly intelligent machines, let's go right to it. What is it that makes us human? Uh, what separates us from animals and algorithms? <laughs> well, uh, I think one of the mistakes that people have made uh, in the past in, in thinking about this question is they've looked for one quality that humans have and then tried to say, well, you know, no animals have it, and no machines have it now, and probably no machines will ever have this one quality. Mm. And one by one, every one of those uh, sort of, it was tools, it was language, it was a sense of, you know, recognizing yourself in the mirror. Whatever quality that people have found that uh, seemed to be distinctively human, uh, it was more and more scientific research it's become clear that, you know, many, many animals share many, many aspects of our human life world. And increasingly, as the machines get more and more powerful, they too are starting to break down the barriers of what we thought was exclusively human. Mm -hmm. So it, in my thinking about it, what I, I do believe that humans um, are, are completely qualitatively distinct from animals, even though, you know, we're animals, too, and we share many things in common with right. non-human animals. But I, I do uh, take what I guess is an increasingly unfashionable position that humans are in a class by themselves. Mm -hmm. And my rationale for saying that is um, that I haven't, I'm not looking for any one quality that sets us apart. I'm, what I argue is that it's the synergy of multiple kinds of qualities acting together and in a sort of a symphony. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm one of the things I'm, you know, it's kind of, the metaphor is really that of a symphony. Uh, and our personhood emerges over time um, from the symphonic interaction of all these different faculties and traits and capabilities. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I think when you put those things all together, interacting and, you know, reinforcing each other, and they, they sort of take each other collectively to a higher level that renders us, you know, quite distinct from, qualitatively distinct from, from all the animals. So, so humanity is a kind of emergent process, then? Emergence is, the, is one of the key concepts in the book. I'm going to devote a whole initial chapter to it, because, you know, the whole idea of the whole being, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, 
Um, it, it applies in many different aspects of the physical world, the social world, and I think uh, it applies clearly in the human brain, how the human brain begets consciousness. Um, and I think it applies, it's a very fruitful concept for thinking about human identity as something that's qualitatively distinct as well. Mm -hmm. I, want, I want to ask you about that, but I'm also reminded of uh, something that was said in a, a previous interview with existential psychologist Kirk Schneider. He suggested that what most fundamentally makes us human is our ability to experience paradox, that we are simultaneously knowledgeable and ignorant, thinking and feeling, abstract and embodied, powerful and vulnerable, and, and that these paradoxes, which, which I, you remind me of when you talk about the, the symphony and, and, not, and our experience of them are, are what make us human. Does, does that resonate with you? Does that, does it that... does, it, only in the sense that I would say the ability to experience and embody paradox um, we do it, I mean, animals experience paradox as well, but we do it in a distinctively human way. And so I would say, I would not want to say, you know, that's the quality that sets us apart, because mm -hmm. I think you get lots of animal uh, people who are, you know, are animal rights people and uh, are advocates for our, uh, are sort of blurring the line between humans and, and, and animals who would, would, would rightly say, no, animals can live in a, in, a, in a kind of a paradoxical, they have paradoxical states of experience and of mind as well, as, as far as we can tell. And the evidence seems to be pointing in that direction. And, and what I would say is that's probably true, but we humans experience paradox in a unique way. For instance, you know, we, we experience our, ourselves as, uh, in, a, in, a, in a time space mm -hmm. that... Um, is quite different. For example, we, th we think of ourselves as coming out of, a, uh, out of a personal past and our society as being embedded in a deeper past that was even here before we were born, coming through the present moment into our own personal future and then our society heading on into a distant future that we don't know exactly what it is, but we imagine it. This is one, one example of you know, what our human the synergy uh, of, of human consciousness allows us to project uh, and to put, situate ourselves within that I, 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 I have yet to see any convincing argument that any animal can come close to that. Mm -hmm. And most of the things that come to mind, humans probably share with animals to a degree, but we just do it in a way um, that's qualitatively different. Right. And I, I really make that, that distinction because... There's such a thing as, you know, there are quantitative distinctions and then there are qualitative ones. So mm -hmm. um, your, your, your water is getting, you know, colder and colder, one degree at a time. It's still the same water. It's still, but then suddenly something happens around zero degrees Celsius and it goes through a phase shift and something qualitatively new emerges, ice, which has all kinds of qualities that the water one or two degrees warmer did not have. And you kind of enter a new domain, and that's the metaphor that I use um, for describing what happens when all these synergies come together in the in the human experience. Mm -hmm. We we've been talking about about animals. How how does this apply when going the other direction in, into machine intelligence and, and algorithms? Well, what's going to probably happen is that um, right now we have narrow AI. Mm -hmm. uh, AI that can drive the Google car, and that's algorithms, and we have deep learning, and we have you know, machines that can learn, that can be taught how to play chess and beat humans. We can also, we now have machines that can be taught one game, and then they figure out how to learn new games that nobody has programmed them to 
learn how to play, and yet they do. They, they learn how to play new games, and then they beat humans uh, a little a short time later. Um, what's going to start happening with the machines is uh, we're going to go beyond narrow domains of AI, and what's probably going to happen is, um, you, you know, if you have a household robot and it, it can only drive your car for you, that's one thing, or mm-hmm. your car is self-driving. But if your household robot can also do your taxes for you, prepare a meal for you, go outside and you know play catch with your kid, come back inside, read a poem that you just wrote, and give you interesting critiques based on its analysis of literary traditions, suddenly you're you're talking about a multifunction robot. You're talking mm-hmm. about um, the algorithms, the different domains of its algorithmic functioning are starting to work together and show the same kinds of synergies that I, just, uh, that I was mentioning earlier in regard to what happens in the human mind. Mm-hmm. At that point, when we start getting household companions that are multifunctional and integrate capability across many different domains, and what I want to really emphasize here is this is not just simulation of human capabilities. It's, you know, the machines actually will be able to do stuff that, that humans can do. So, you know, make, make a, understand the rich contextual meaning of a novel. Well, I, I want to I push back on that because the, I haven't seen any evidence that a, that a machine actually reads and understands a novel. Right. So we're, not, we're nowhere near that yet. And mm-hmm. uh, I, it's possible that um, we'll never get there. Um, just as it's possible that we'll never fully figure out how the human brain begets a human mind. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk to the neuroscientists about that question, they'll, some of them will say, well, we'll probably get there someday. We're making progress. We're still very much at the beginning, but look how far we've come in the past 20 years. Um, and I basically would say the same thing about AI. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the resources that we're pouring into both neuroscience and AI are tremendous, and they're growing, mm-hmm. and the pace of innovation and discovery is growing. So... Uh, while I accept that it, it's, it's quite possible that we'll never figure out how the human mind is related to the functioning of the human brain, we'll never figure out how to make a machine that has these multiple domains of functioning, that's, that's certainly possible. But it's also increasingly plausible to me that it will be possible someday mm-hmm. to figure out how the human mind and brain work together mm-hmm. and to figure out ways to get these increasingly integrated functioning machines where they start to really, um, you know, convince us that they're almost persons in their own right. Right. And so, that's not inconceivable to me. Now, you're right mm-hmm. to point out we're nowhere near that, right? But, but when you look at the progress that's happened um, in the past, you know, 15, 20 years, some of these new forms of deep learning where, you know, you just kind of unleash the machine on the Internet and vast databases and, and thing, you know, finds patterns that humans would not even be able to find and starts teaching itself. These things suggest to me, these developments suggest to me that we shouldn't rule out the possibility that maybe 30, 50, 70 years from now, we may have machine companions who we'll really have to ask ourselves, do they deserve the same rights? Mm-hmm. as we humans do. Mhm. Uh, an interesting question has come up in past discussions about whether or not we should be treating our 
algorithmic companions that way, whether or not it's it's actually good for us. On, on the one hand, you have the sense that if we don't treat them as people, then we are teaching ourselves to devalue each other. And yet, on the other hand, it's been suggested that if we treat them as people, then what we are learning to do is avoid the actual messy complications of, of human interaction. That we are, we are becoming less good at interacting with one another because we spend more of our time spending that sort of emotional capital and concern on, on machines. I'm, I'm curious if, if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean... The, the the way machines operate in the world today, they're you know they're they're well below the threshold of what I would call personhood, right? Mm-hmm. So when we treat ourselves in machine-like fashion today in today's world, what we're doing is we're oversimplifying our humanness and therefore mm-hmm. dehumanizing ourselves in really basic ways, um, and that's obviously harmful and something that we need to try to resist as much as we can. So that's mechanization of something that is far more nuanced and complex and rich and subtle and mysterious, and you're turning it into an oversimplified model. Um, and if you're, if you're treating yourself or, or aspects of yourself or other people that way, you're dehumanizing yourself and those other people, and that's a, a big loss. And that's something, uh, you know, you think of the Charlie Chaplin movie Modern Times, when... Mm-hmm. He's sitting on the assembly line and being treated like a machine, and he's expected to function like a machine. And what he, you know, the masterful comic nature of what he does is he shows, but I'm not a machine, and right. you're trying to make me into a machine. And he's very funny about the way he does it, but it's also become one of the emblematic critiques of our modern world, which is, you know, you know, in many cases, in the interests of productivity and efficiency, we start treating ourselves like machines, and when we do that we lose something infinitely precious. Mm-hmm. But when, if, if a day comes when the right. machines are operating at levels of complexity uh, and, and richness and mystery that are you know, on the same par, on the par with, with humans, well, then it wouldn't be dehumanizing at all, and it could be that those machines will actually enrich our lives and right. o- offer us perspectives that we can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. So, so at that point, will there be any any difference between human humanity and machineness between human intelligence and machine intelligence? Well, of course, the big the big um, difference will be that machines, once they reach if they reach human intelligence, if they reach that level, um, they'll be able to modify themselves um, very rapidly. Um, and so you get this problem of recursive, you know, cycles of self-improvement, um, which has some uh, some AI uh, designers very worried. Mm-hmm. If you know, if I, if I can think of a way to improve myself, like I have to go, I have to read. Like, let's say I want to learn a new language, I have to go through the whole process and and teach myself the new language. Let's say I want to improve my body. Well, I have to start exercising regularly. My capability for modifying my own body and mind through the biological process of my body and my brain, that's pretty limited. I can make Mm -hmm. some modifications, but I'm still pretty limited. But a machine, if it reaches human levels of capability and intelligence, it's going to be able to modify its own hardware, modify its own software, and make itself smarter, more nimble, more dexterous, 
And then having done that, it'll be smarter. So then it'll say, well, now that I'm smarter, I see still new ways that I can make myself even smarter. And it'll go through a second cycle of self-improvement. And then having done that, it can go through a third. And presumably the more powerful it becomes, the more swiftly those cycles will add up and you get an exponential process of self-improvement where it's just a big question mark. What is it going to make of itself? Where will it go? And this is depicted really well in uh, the Spike Jones movie, Her. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've seen that one, but it's, yeah. uh, there's this, uh, well, it's kind of a spoiler alert here, but the machine basically is, starts out as a fairly companionable software operating system and they have nice conversations back and forth, but over time what you realize is that the machine is growing in powers and capability and meeting other machines on the web, and, and eventually it outgrows its relationship with a single human and becomes something superior and, in some ways, alien. Mm-hmm. Now, I worry about that a lot. I worry about AI kind of running away from us out of control, and this is... When, when Bill Gates and Stephen Hawking and uh, Elon Musk, you know, issued these, these kind of scary statements about how AI could be the best thing we've ever invented or the worst thing we've ever invented, you know, what they're, what they're saying is, you know, right now we can control these machines, but once they can modify themselves, once they reach a level where they can redesign themselves repeatedly, it's no longer clear that any human will be able to control them. And, and we, we just don't know what they're going to do. It could be beneficial. It could be harmful. It could be neutral. It could be, we don't know, but it's very risky because they'll be powerful. Mm-hmm. So that scares the heck out of me. And so I, I actually t- took a pause in my book about what makes us human and wrote another book about how we're going to control these very powerful technologies. And I'm, I'm almost finished now with that book. I'll be done with it in about a month. Um, <laughs> So, so, how, so how do we control them? What do we do? Well, first of all, on the AI question, uh, the, the, the book actually looks at four different kinds of technology uh, that are scary. I call it, the title of the book is Controlling the Technologies of Apocalypse. Mm. And subtitle is Nuclear, Nanotech, Synthetic Biology, and AI. Mm-hmm. Um, and so each one has its own, you have to follow its own sort of nature, and there are different strategies for controlling each one of these very dangerous, but also potentially very beneficial technologies. They're powerful, and they can be used for good or for ill. Mm-hmm. The, the, the thing about AI is nobody has yet come up with a plausible strategy for building an AI that will be reliably stable and friendly to humans. Mm-hmm. And this is increasingly, when, when you read the literature, that you know, it's increasingly rippling through the world of the AI designers, um, there's some concern out there because, admittedly, this is still relatively far away. It could be a half century away. But we need to start thinking about these dangers now. And what I basically argue in my book is until we can be sure, really sure, that these things are stable in the sense that they don't modify themselves out of beyond all recognition and friendly toward us, in some sense, obedient to our wishes, um, until we can be sure, we shouldn't create them. Mm-hmm. So you'd, you'd actually advocate for a for an attempt to uh, 
to, to halt the the progress, the innovation on the application on what on what we're doing right now with it, to take a pause. I would say a moratorium on the the, the types of research that are accelerating our capability to build these human level AI machines, and an ex, a, a, a tremendous you know ramping up of funding for research on AI safety mm. and AI security. Um, because right now it's kind of like if you're designing a car, and uh, you know you 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 put a team of a hundred researchers on making the engine more powerful, and you put one researcher on designing the brakes. Right. Um, that's not a good. That's not a smart allocation of resources. Mm-hmm. And right now all the incentives are, um, you know, corporations, governments, military. AI is going to be the most powerful tool we've ever created. I think there's no doubt about that. And so, unfortunately, this arms race mentality creeps in where, well, I can't slow down because they're not slowing down. They're not, these other guys aren't slowing down, so I have to, you know, go as fast as I can. And when that happens, you sort of downplay caution and safety, and you instead put all your emphasis on let's get this, powerful invention as fast as we can so at least we'll be the first to have it mm-hmm. and that's a scary dynamic right so I, I have a big a whole series of chapters on uh, how we're going to have to work not just within a country like the United States but work with people in other countries it has to be a global um, system for for you know controlling this kind of technology uh, and controlling the research that gets done. And if we can't build that, uh, that, that system for cooperating in how we, work, how we build AI, um, it's going to become very dangerous, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you don't drive a car with no brakes. No. Yeah. Well, at least you do, but you don't get very far. <laughs> right. <laughs> so building, building better brakes is, is essentially the... Uh, the... Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to go back to something that you had said when we were talking about the way in which we communicate with with AI, and yeah. you, you said that if we start to to mechanize one another, then something very important is is lost. What 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 is it that gets lost? What is it in our in our humanity and the way we treat each other humanely that is that is important that that we are at risk of losing here? I think the, uh, one of the people who's written most beautifully and eloquently about this is. Uh, from a state near mine. I live in Tennessee, and he lives in Kentucky. His name is Wendell Berry. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with his poetry, his essays, his novels. Somewhat. Um, he's a farmer. He's a Kentucky farmer, and he's a philosopher and an essayist. And uh, uh, he writes about um, he, he writes about what it means to live on the land in the rhythms of the land, and what it, we're losing in a sort of urban high tech accelerating society where uh, increasingly we spend more and more of our of each day working with machines looking at screens interacting with each other not face to face but through screens um, so he's one of the there are other researchers you know there's a woman at MIT named Sherry Turkle who's done wonderful work of, of, of this sort as well sure. um, but overall I would, I would say he's the one who really in his novels, he depicts the values of a, of a way of life where um, things are slower and they're uh, and you know uh, they're 
more, they're richer, they're imbued with mystery, and uh, sort of the full complexity of who we are is given a chance and a space, a breathing room to unfold. And unfortunately, when you look at what, the, what living with all these machines and technology does, it, it tends to make us faster and faster, mm-hmm. because we've invented them specifically to make ourselves more efficient at what we do. But what we don't realize is then kind of like there's a rebound effect. The machine is supposed to render me more productive, but then I'm having to dance with the machine according to its pace and its rules. So, I mean, I'll give you a, a concrete example. I, I, I teach at Vanderbilt. I go from, uh, I, I finish a class, and I walk from my classroom back to my office, and I, I look at all these young people, 18 to 22 years old, walking across this beautiful campus, beautiful spring day, mm-hmm. and 90% of them are glued to their cell phones. Mm-hmm. So that, to the point where they're almost running into each other. To me, you know, Wendell Berry has, is, is on to something when he says, you're losing something. The machine, you're becoming kind of addicted to this little screen world where you sort of get an endorphin rush when you get a, you know, a, a Snapchat or a, a, somebody pings you on your cell phone and you have to reply. And we're primed to sort of respond positively to that. But then we, you, you know, you, you, don't, you don't see where you are. You're not, your feet are not on the ground. You don't see the sky and the trees all around you, and you're not really present in the, in the full richness of the present moment. You're just down in this little narrow little communication. And the more you do that, if it's, you know, it's, if, if it's just an occasional thing, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But if it becomes something that sort of metastasizes through your life, then I think there's a real systematic impoverishment that starts to happen. It could, impoverished how? How do we? What? What are we losing? Well, it's it's like um, you know the video games and the CGI and the special effects. They're getting better and better and more and more realistic. Mm-hmm. And so we have the illusion we're playing these games or we're communicating with each other through these the intermediation of these machines. We have the illusion that this is a that we're interacting in a rich, complex reality. But the fact is, all these video games and all these technologies for communication are vast simplifications of a much more complicated world. Mm-hmm. The real world is infinitely more complicated. Right. And so what happens is, the more we immerse ourselves in these artificial realities, we forget that it's actually kind of editing, it's edited out mm-hmm. uh, half of the, or more, more than half of the, of the mystery, of the complexity. And then we live, impo- that's the impoverishment. We're, we're living on a really narrow little bandwidth of reality uh, of a, by our own choosing, instead of paying attention to uh, the full broadband presence of the real world, which is, it's going to baffle us, it's going to frighten us, it's going to uh, delight us in ways that we never could have anticipated. It's going to be full of paradox. It's going to be full of paradox, yes. Yeah. So, so, so really what's happening then is we are, cre- we are creating simulations of our own lives and reducing ourselves to them. Yes, like, yeah. that's a really good way to put it. And, 
And the point is, the simulation is never going to be as good as the real deal. Right. Right. I, I want to ask you about something you, you mentioned in brief. You you have written a lot about synthetic biology and biological enhancement. And yeah. this is an area that we haven't talked much about in, in this series. Are, are these advances improving our lives? Are, are they making us more like biological machines? Uh, what, what What's happening there? Well, that too is sort of just taking off, I would say. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think we need to I don't want to, you know, overhype what I'm what I'm describing. But there are three basic categories that I look at uh, in, in my book about bio bioenhancement. I look at pharmaceuticals. I look at bioelectronic implants, where we in- start to incorporate technologies into our sensorium or into our body. And then I look at genetic modification. And in all along all three of those fronts. Um, you know, the pharmaceutical front, we've been modifying ourselves for, you know, millennia in some ways, but um, very powerfully we've already been doing it since World War II. The genetic stuff is much newer, and so is the bioelectronic stuff. Mm-hmm. But if you kind of draw dotted lines into the future and you listen to what the experts in these fields are saying about where we might plausibly be 25 years or 50 years from now, um, it's kind of all bets are off. I mean, the human body is going to be, our science and our technology are allowing us to intervene in the biological substrate of who we are ever more directly and powerfully and with fewer side effects. And so you really start, what starts coming over the horizon is the possibility of, you know, you imagine pharmaceuticals that allow you to fine-tune your emotional states through the course of the day. Or maybe a skull cap that you put on that stimulates your brain in certain ways and lets you fine-tune your emotions. I I need to feel a little bit less, um, you know, I'm feeling a a little bit too sad now. I think I'm going to turn up the elation, but I don't want to make it too too giddy. I just want to sort of a few notches, and then I'm going to tweak this wistfulness over here, and I'm going to, it's kind of like a piano keyboard. Mm-hmm. You become your own puppeteer. We're nowhere near that yet, but the, when you look at the direction, the trajectory for pharmaceuticals, bioelectronics, and genetics, we're going to have more and more control over sort of sculpting our selfhood over time. Mm. And some of it is going to be you know, very short-term. What do I want to feel like two seconds from now? And some of it is going to be like, well, do I, you know, do I want to modify myself genetically or through epigenetic modification so that I will have certain physical traits two weeks from now or two years from now um, that I don't have now, but I'll have new capabilities. Hmm. <coughs> so there, we are becoming, you know, it's kind of like we've mastered the, the natural world around ourselves. That was the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. And suddenly we you know, didn't have to be out there breaking our backs with horses and, and donkeys pulling plows. And now we've got machines to do all that. And little by little we've mastered the physical surroundings of our world. In, I should say mastered. We haven't mastered the ecological balance at all. And we've thrown the whole ecological balance out of whack. Right. But in some ways, we've, we've become masters of the, phys- of the physical surroundings, but now we're turning that t- same science and technology back in on ourselves, and we will be the next phase, the next mm-hmm. stage of modification. 
and I suspect that there will be problems just as our modification since the Industrial Revolution of the physical world, or, uh, in our environment, um, led to some big unexpected uh, problems, the ecological problems. I suspect that there will be unex- uh, unanticipated uh, drawbacks and problems as we try to modify our own bodies and minds using biotechnology. Right. I'm, I'm just wondering if, if our humanity is a symphony of various elements, what does this do to the symphony? Yes, exactly. And what's especially, you know, the, the thing about the symphony of who we are right now, relatively unmodified, is that the, the symphony doesn't have any one author. If you're religious, you'll believe that the author is God. And if you're not religious, you'll believe that the author is nature or chance. Or, But what happens when the symphony starts to be written much more powerfully and directly by humans? Mm-hmm. Uh, we become, in that sense, artificial, partially designed beings. Right. And uh, talk about dehumanization, talk about mechanization and uh, oversimplification of who we are. There's a real risk there, a real risk that we lose touch with some of the things that you know are most central to making our lives meaningful and, and worth living. Mm-hmm. This this brings us up to to the closest thing that I think this series that we're doing has as an ongoing theme, which was uh, first mentioned in an interview with Sherry Turkle, actually, uh, the, yeah. the idea that we've reached a point where we really need to start practicing being human, that there are degrees yeah. of our humanity that we simply can't take for granted anymore, and if we want to keep them, we need to practice them. I'm, I'm wondering what that, how much sense that makes to you. Couldn't agree more. I, I, I think if we're not careful and deliberate about how we go about this, if we're not critical and thoughtful about how we go about this, we're going to blunder into a situation where we lose our humanity. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so we have to be, I think, the first step in that, uh, being intentional about this, is you need to sit down with yourself, each of us does, and say, what are the things that contribute to my flourishing as a person? Mm-hmm. And what are the things that undermine my flourishing, sort of saying, like, as I look back on my life, when have I been happiest? When have I been most wretched? What was I doing at those moments? And try to be really thoughtful about developing a a clear sense of what is it that makes people flourish, not just other people, but myself. And if each of us can do that, you sort of then have a yardstick, and you hold that yardstick up to each new technology that comes into your life. And you say, let me not just look and say, okay, so this cell phone now, it gives me the capacity to talk to anybody I want and to exchange messages constantly with anybody I want. And that's really cool, right? It's allowing me to do this new thing. Mm-hmm. But now it gives you a new capability. But now you step back and you say, but what impact is it having on my life as a whole? Stepping back. What are the downsides, if I am really honest with myself? I have this new capability, but as I look at, in practice, how it's playing out in my life, you know, one thing you might say to yourself is, I no longer notice the trees and the sky above myself as I walk around in my Mm -hmm. environment. Well, that's a loss. So then maybe you say to yourself, you make little rules. You say, no cell phones at the dinner table. You say, no cell phones when I'm walking around in the real world. Let me be present. 
And I think, you know, if we can be more intentional about each of these technologies, being aware that it's not just all added capabilities, but it's also there are going to be unintended negative effects. And if you have, you have, we have to be much more self-aware and, and conduct this sort of holistic analysis, not just what, what extra things does it let me do, but at what cost? Mm-hmm. When I'm doing those things, what am I no longer doing that I was doing before? And what are the things, that, how does this all mesh with what I consider to be the things that make my life valuable, worth living, meaningful? Right. Is it, is it adding or subtracting? And, you know, it's always, probably in most cases, going to be a mixed bag. Yeah. But at least we're then aware of it. And when you're aware of it, then you can, you can dial back the negative things. Like I say, you know, no cell phone at the dinner table is a basic rule, but, you know, it, we're, we're in a conversation with a friend. Right. No interruptions from cell phones. That, you know, that to me has become kind of important. I, I don't want to be constantly distracted off into these other, you know, by these messages that are coming in and, and that undermine the quality of an interaction that I'm having in the here and now. Right. This may be this may be too pat of a summation, but if a big part of the problem with the way we interact with technology is that it turns our lives into simulations of themselves, figure out how to get out of the simulation as opposed yes. to the things that put you that put you into it. Exactly. I mean, it, you know, in my case, it happened to be that twenty minutes of meditation in the morning is one way to get out of the simulation. Mm-hmm. Just it's a because it's a it's a discipline that sort of puts me in a certain frame of mind. Where when I'm you know when I'm kind of drifting out of touch with myself over the course of the rest of the day, just that training that I've done in the morning it helps me be more present, more aware of how I'm how I'm feeling, how I'm interacting with other people. So that's that's a you could call meditation a kind of technology if you wanted. You're just sitting there quietly watching your own mind. That's an example of a practice that you know. Accentuates, at least I can say, speaking for myself, it accentuates my ability to be present in a way that makes my life more meaningful. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, as we add these new technologies and capabilities into our lives, that's the question we need to be asking. And so I completely agree with Sherry Turkle on that one. Yeah, it's, it seems like, I mean, you, you just mentioned presence and deciding to, to, to meditate for 20 minutes in the morning. The, the two things that have repeatedly come up in this question of, okay, how do we practice being human? What do we do? Not, not on the, the big social level, but on the level yeah. of ourselves as individuals. The two things that always seem to come up are first, being more present, and, and second, making, making active decisions as opposed to sort of passively accepting whatever the, the technology is, is carrying you towards, but, but actively deciding, yeah. okay, this is important, this is what I'm going to do. Yes, and I agree. And, you know, at first, when I first took up meditation, I thought, this is going to make me into the most self-conscious, like in a bad way, mm-hmm. person. I'm just going to be constantly, like, looking at, oh, what did I just, what was I just thinking? What was I just feeling? Oh, you know, constantly looking at myself and never able to just kind of let myself go and experience stuff. And, in fact, it's been the exact opposite. That little exercise of watching my own mind and training myself to be aware of what my feelings, sensations, emotions, thoughts are, it, it allows me to, you know, stop from time to time and say, um, 
how can I be, how can I choose what I want to do next as opposed to react? Mm-hmm. And what you discover, I, I, I'm speaking again from my own experience with meditation, <laughs> is we are more robotic than we think. Ah. Uh. <laughs> Already, mm-hmm. much of what we do is mindless, conditioned action. You know, so you get a stimulus from outside. It's an email that says something nasty or somebody looks at you the wrong way, and we just react mm-hmm. automatically. And a lot of that is just conditioning. Right. With the meditation, that's a powerful tool that allows you to see conditioned responses. And the metaphor I use there, it's, a, it's another automobile metaphor. It's like putting your, your foot on the clutch and, and stepping on the clutch because the automatic reactions are, are like the engine driving the wheels. But you step on the clutch, it gives you a little moment of freedom. Mm-hmm. The engine is no longer driving the wheels. You're no longer reacting. You're just observing. And that opens up a space just to be aware of what you're experiencing and feeling. But then also, do I want to keep feeling that way or do I want to try to go in a different direction? Mm-hmm. Do I want to keep right. treating this person out of that state of mind or do I want to respond to this person out of a different frame of mind that I've decided is going to be you know, better? Mm-hmm. And, and that really is the, the most present and the most real as opposed to simulated and automatic uh, kind of life you can live. Well, if, 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 the, I mean, the irony there is I'm, here I am studying all these technologies and how they're going to change our world 50 years from now. But, you know, part of what I'm saying is, I, I guess I'm saying is, right now I'm discovering that humans tend to be more robotic than they realize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and if we're not careful, you know, the, the advent of all these machines is going to make us even more robotic. And so all the things that we can do along the lines of what Sherry Turkle, you know, advocates in her work um, is to be, in t- all that we, everything we can do to be intentional about how we set up our interactions, not just with other people, but with ourself, mm-hmm. you know, moment by moment, all of that, I think, opens up a space of choice. And I think right. that's a powerful thing. Right. Then... And that, that choice, arguably, is, is, is where humanity is at its, its most engaged and fertile. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there is such a thing as free will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I see it as kind of unfolding in two different dimensions. One aspect of free will is, you know, oh, there's an old lady who needs to cross the street. Do I choose to go over and help her, right? Uh, an immediate choice that I have to make. Do I walk away or do I go over and help that person who's in need of assistance? The other kind of free will is what kind of person do I want to be 10 years from now? What what do I want to make of myself? Not just like where do I want to be in my career or what kind of house do I want to own, but ethically, what kind of human do I want to be for the other humans who are around me? What kind of relationships do I want to have with the people I love? And what are what are the values that I want to cultivate, like a garden? And that's a, that's a longer-term sort of, sort of free will. And I think if we can exercise the free will, not just in the present moment, but in that kind of longer-term way, um, we're, taking, we're, we're taking more... It's a form of, I guess I want to say control, but it's not sort of a mechanical control. You're just... Uh, you, you have agency. You, mm-hmm. you have a say in how things unfold. 
and you know it's, it's never it's never uh, all powerful it's always you know we're always struggling with things that we don't see and can't control much much of our life is something that happens to us rather than something that we initiate so the, to the extent that we can actually pause breathe decide what values we want to live by and then moment by moment try to live according to those values by choice mm-hmm. that's i think uh, an enrichment that's that's something that would probably take us in the direction of greater flourishing right great great michael best thank you so much for this conversation well, i've really enjoyed it You've been listening to an interview with Michael Bess, a professor of history at Vanderbilt University and author of the forthcoming book, What Makes Us Human? From Neurons to the Sistine Chapel. This is a podcast of the Burning Man Philosophical Center. The Philosophical Center is a Larry Harvey production with casting by Stuart Mangrum, audio assistance by Jay Knizzle, and theme music by Ariel Cruz. I'm Caveat. This podcast is part of the series on Burning Man's 2018 theme, iRobot, and there's lots more on our website where this came from. Take a look, stay tuned, and remember the Philosophical Center motto, belief is thought at rest.